0: Thanks all for coming. My name is Richard McGregor. I'm at the Lowe Institute, the think tank in Sydney. Uh, Our topic is the one that you read about in the paper every day, China. We've got two great guests. The first, on my far right, Jeff Raby, uh, had a distinguished career in the trade and uh, diplomatic or foreign policy uh, bureaucracy and was ambassador to China for four years from 2007. Um, He had some rough times when he was there, but uh, I'd say looking back on it, it was the the golden era. Um, uh, His book, which came out last year, is titled China's Grand Strategy and Australia's Future in the New World Order, which I think you will agree is a title that kind of covers all bases, uh, as the book does. Um, Nearer to me is Professor Feng Chongyi from the University of Technology in Sydney, Uh, Actually, UTS, University of Technology, Sydney is the proper title. Uh, PhD from Nankai University in Tianjin. And of course, uh, Professor Feng was, you might remember, detained in China for a couple of weeks, both lucky and unlucky. Actually, unlucky, then lucky. Unlucky to be detained, in a sense, but lucky because when he was detained, Premier Li Keqiang was in Australia, so that was... And Xi Jinping was on his way to America. So that created the political uh, conditions for him to get out and come home, back home to Australia. We're going to talk about detentions later. I want to talk about China and Australia. I want to talk about detentions to give you a, a sort of more personal flavour of that. And then we're going to talk about China generally. And with about 20 minutes to go, uh, we'll go to audience questions. Jeff, I'm going to start with you. Your book, as I kind of mentioned, covers all the big questions facing Australia, particularly to do with China. Uh, let's just go straight to the China-Australian relationship. You tell us how bad you think it is and why it's got so bad.
1: Thanks, Richard. Good morning, everybody. Uh, the relationship between Australia and China, the official relationship, uh, has never been worse. Uh, diplomatic relations were established in 1972, and this is the first time in all of those years Uh, that we uh, have had no official contact uh, between the senior levels of the Australian government and the senior levels of the Chinese government. And beyond that, uh, as of late last year, we now have no media uh, organisations from Australia represented inside China. There are many Australian journalists working in China, but they're not working for Australian uh, uh, outlets, they're working for foreign outlets. And so uh, this is a state of affairs that's been developing over a number of years. People think it goes back to when the uh, Foreign Minister and then the Prime Minister last March made some very ill-judged uh, and unprepared statements about looking for the origins of COVID-19. Um, we can talk about that later if you wish. Uh, but that was just the last major uh, frisson in the relationship Uh, building on many uh, years of difficulties and tension that had been developing. And so my book really tries to understand the big picture, the context in which uh, this little thing in some ways, important for us as Australia, but but little in the global scene, uh, has developed. And essentially what I'm arguing in my book is that we are living through the greatest power shift in world history and that Australia has not managed its relations and has not managed to position itself in this power shift, and our diplomacy has been found to be wanting. And all the other uh, events, like the call for the COVID-19 inquiry and so on, uh, can be best understood in that broad context. And then it's, I think, more comprehensible why China is itself behaving, which it's behaving badly, but it's behaving the way it is towards us. As you say, China's behaving badly. It's something more than that.
0: If you look at the extraordinary trade sanctions now being meted out against Australia, uh, to take the other side of the argument, people would say, you look at Xinjiang, you look at Hong Kong, uh, you look at the treatment of Australia. Doesn't this, in fact, confirm the sorts of position that's been adopted by the more hawkish elements on China that this is the sort of country we're dealing with, so we'd better sort of reorganise our relationship with it and
1: put some distance uh, between ourselves and China. Yep, and that's, that's, that's uh, an argument that's often made in Canberra. Um, but that is the reality of the state we're dealing with that has assumed so much power in such a uh, relatively short time. Uh, the point I make on that, Richard, is that we have become an outlier. Many other states share our concerns about the matters that you have raised. Uh, human rights in Xinjiang and Tibet, and I deal with these in the book, Uh, Hong Kong, uh, although Hong Kong is not part of that problem or that issue in and of itself. um, But uh, we alone are the ones that have uh, uh, a frozen bilateral political relationship. Some other countries have faced the wrath of China's economic coercion, uh, which is one element of China's statecraft. unfortunate and, 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 and uh, a very bad element of china statecraft, but that's the world we live in. So what I'm calling for is a much more realist uh, approach to this and for Australia to understand that this is a reality we have to live with, how we deal with it in our interest and advance our interest is where I would differ substantially from Canberra and uh, the, the advisers to government. I don't think it's in, a, in Australia's interest that this relationship continues in this particular state. Um, And other countries have not uh, found it uh, impossible to square the circle between their values, democratic institutions, and belief in those, and maintaining normal, productive, constructive relations with China. One more quick question for you. To um, recalibrate
0: our relationship with China, is it inevitable, in your view, that we have to distance ourselves in some fashion
1: from the United States? Uh, Absolutely. And I think that is a major problem with how we have managed our relations with China. Uh, From about 2015, 16, 17, around that time, the US essentially redefined its relationship with China. After 40 years of strategic engagement with China, seeing China uh, as uh, uh, as a strategic cooperative relationship Uh, the US redefined its relationship to one of strategic competition and effectively seeing China as a strategic threat, an enemy. Uh, That's fine for the United States, because the United States is the dominant global power, and throughout history, the dominant power will resist the rise of the ascendant power. Uh, What is odd in our situation is we've glued ourselves to the hip of the United States, where we, in a sense, don't have a dog in the fight. We are not the dominant power trying to resist a ascendant power. We're a relatively small country with massive economic interests in China, not because we've willed it that way, but that is the fact of our economic comparative advantage we share with China. And so we need to develop uh, a much more independent foreign policy from the United States uh, in how we manage the China relationship. Changi, let me bring you in now. Um...
0: How do you see, what do you see as the root cause for the uh, almost breakdown in China-Australia relations? I mean, Australia, in Australia, there's quite a debate, but a lot of people criticise Australia for that, uh, as does China,
2: saying it's all your fault. What's your perspective? I think um, my basic position is the opposite of of yours. Um... It's good to be on a panel where not everybody (laughs) agrees. (laughs) You, you you tend to uh, blame uh, Canberra, or uh, Chilean government for all the fault, all the difficulties or troubles. From my perspective, I would uh, tend to blame more on the Chinese government. Um, yeah, why is that? Expand on that. Uh, to me, as a historian, um, the Chinese communist regime today is one of the Five repressed uh, communist regimes in the around the world. It's actually the headquarters of the world dictatorships, if you like. You have China, North Korea, Cuba, Laos, and Vietnam. And China, as a communist regime, it uh, for its own survival, it, it behaves as a dictatorship around the world. Uh, he, it, for its own nature and its own survival, he has done everything possible to undermine human rights regime, to undermine democracies, and to establish a safe zone for the, this kind of political system, which is outdated and should be buried long ago. We all know that back in 1989 to 1991, the homeless regimes in Soviet Union, Eastern Europe, all disappear. At that point, it's a very, very optimistic moment that uh, we even talk about the end of history, that the the homeless regime as a political system is gone. We enter a new era of post-Cold War Europe. But we are all wrong. We are mistaken. The Cold War continued, with China as the leader of the communist camp. It continued its political warfare as well as uh, ideological, trade, information warfare against democracies around the world. And that's why Australia become a target, a soft target if you like, because the uh, trade interdependence for the attack by the Senate Community. But
0: to take that point and to, to take Jeff's point, mm. it, it used to be okay to compete against communism when they are unsuccessful. Mm. So China is just by about every measure mm. a success story in recent years and they're not just in terms of economic growth and wealth but in technology, uh, diplomatic power, now military power. Mm. Uh, so you know, if the world, you know, is it's not like the Cold War in that respect, is it? Um, and this is also in Australia's neighbourhood. Does that mean that we have to take a more realist view?
2: Even we are realistic, we need to distinguish very clearly between Communist Party, that's your expertise, and the Chinese population, the nation. We need to do our business with China to trade and communicate with Chinese people. But we need to take different approach to the homosexuality regime itself, especially for the, from your perspective. I'm not happy about your, your moral equivalence to treat China as the same as the United States, to treat an a auto, autocratic regime as the same as a democratic regime. They are just power struggle. It's, it's, uh, in your book, you mentioned several times that. Uh, that's a Thucydides trap. Thucydides trap. trap. That's right. an extremely it, it, hard it, word it, to <laughs> pronounce, especially after you've had a drink. Actually, it, it, it's yeah. simply a power struggle yeah. between between dominant uh, power and uh, emerging power. I think that's a wrong force analogy because uh, that analogy took away ideological and political difference of systems. Mm. Uh, that that is, um, we could not see the conflict between democracies and dictatorships in modern and con- contemporary world as, as the conflict between what is and date in the ancient times. It's simply wrong in my,
1: in my perspective. I think, I think yeah. if I could come in yeah. though, mm. you're mixing a few things up there, Chongi. First of mm. all, but back to your opening statement, Yeah, we, we, we have some differences but I'm not blaming anybody. I'm not blaming the Australian government and I'm not blaming China. I don't bring a value... Uh, a values-based approach to this. I'm saying this is the world we live in. How do we live in this world? Secondly, the Thucydides trap is not a, not a discussion or an argument about moral equivalence. As you said, it's about the dominant power resisting the ascendant power. I don't argue that we uh, align ourselves more closely with China's values or acknowledge its system. Uh, what we have to do is live with a China that is powerful, strong, as Richard said, successful, and as like you said, We are deeply dependent on economically and that's not going to change anytime soon so how do we live in this new world order and that's essentially what the book's about i my third part of the book is called australia's dystopian future because it's not a pleasant happy world that we survey when we look out over the next several decades it's a world dominated not dominated but heavily heavily shaped by autocracies there's nothing of moral equivalence in, in in my position it's simply How do we find a way in this very challenging, dystopian world that's emerged with the end of the unipolar moment that was led by the United States, albeit briefly? And just one last quick comment. This is nothing like the Cold War. That's a historically false analogy. Uh, China is deeply, deeply integrated in the international system. In a way, the Soviet Union never was. that's completely unhelpful to bring in those that type of language into this discussion. <laughs> yeah. You pro- yes. reply to that?
2: Yeah. <laughs> of course,
1: uh, Cold War One,
2: as the fight between United States and Soviet Union, is fundamentally different from Cold War Two, the fight between China, Communist China, and uh, Democratic United States. But even on the point of economic interdependence, it's a uh, self-created by the democratic world with some sort of uh, moral bankruptcy of democracies, in a sense. If you take Australia, for example, I think people around here are all senior enough to know that from 1950s to 1970s, that is the golden age of, Chinese, of Australian economy. We, we have little or even no trade would which, which come to China. We did extremely well. The... the Actually, we did sell wheat to them in the 50s. <laughs> yes. yeah. little, we we'll, okay. We've been pretty amoral with trade for a long time, but, you know, go on. Yeah. But but it, the dependency created since the 1980s actually is because the uh, advanced democracies or, or industrial indel- countries uh, found that we can relocate the manufacturing sector to China, to elsewhere, to exploit the lower uh, wage, to exploit the, the, the correlation of our uh, environment, to get higher profit and hollow out our industries and, and then create that sort of dependency we are now. We have to live with it. But even in terms of um, realism, your, your position. Realism is, is good to some extent, but we could not take the position of realism at its expense of basic values and basic ideologies. That we believe that, oh, there's no universal morality. Morality is relative to culture, to countries. They have their own value, we have our own, we have our own value. Just put it aside and do business. Profit comes first. I, I don't think that is a defensible position. Okay,
1: so you want well, just to just very very quick because pre- I want to pre- move on. Yeah, yeah, two points. One, uh, everyone sitting here today with their pensions wouldn't be as rich as they are today were it not for uh, the enormous trade we do with China, and we'll continue to do whatever we think. Or trade generally. Well, trade, <laughs> but but but, yeah. but enormous. I mean, China is forty percent of our exports. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's it's not a small thing to think about. It's not a marginal consideration. And the other point, it would be morally reprehensible to deny the huge contribution and benefit that's been made by economic growth and rising incomes in China to lift so many hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. There's another dimension to that. OK. So um, anyway, as Chongyi said, it's good to be with an audience who
0: remembers the Cold War. I'm old enough to. And even the ones who remember the 1950s. <laughs> um, anyway, so there's one aspect of the China-Australia relationship, one of the really ugly aspects, is so-called hostage diplomacy, whether, in fact, that is the case. Both Jeff and Chongyi know the two Australian, Chinese-Australians, are two of the Chinese-Australians in jail at the moment. Um, and it's a sort of mark of the opacity of the system, how difficult it is to know what's going on. So I want to get them both separately to speak about the people they know. Jeff, you first of all. Uh, Cheng Lei is the Chinese-Australian journalist who works for CGTM, which is Chinese Global English Language TV Network. Uh, She's now been charged, I think, with the closing uh, state secrets. And then we'll come to Chong Yi, who knows uh, Yang Jun, who's the... uh, former journalist, diplomat, actually worked for the Chinese Ministry for State Security. He's been in jail for much longer and is charged with espionage. So, Jeff, give us your sense of this case, the person, and also whether
1: this she's become a pawn in the bilateral fight. Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, it's, it's it's quite distressing. She was a good friend. I've known her for many years. Uh, we we're all part of a circle. And over the last 13 years, I've lived in Beijing. Um, and she was disappeared, Shangwei, uh, uh, back in uh, August last year. That's the normal procedure in these sorts of cases. People are just taken. Uh, potential... Um, uh, people who have potentially evidence in the case, they may also be taken. And you know nothing. And in relatively quick time, actually, uh, which was <laughs> nearly six months, I think, uh, there was just been recently an announcement of... Uh, her charges. So she's been dis- disappeared, investigated. Now when they feel there's a body of evidence, she's now been charged and it will go to trial. And uh, it's very rare for anyone to be acquitted in these cases. So, you know, she has two, ch- two young children in Melbourne with her mother. Uh, it's, it's a very tragic case. But as I wrote in my IFR column, uh, in August, September last year, I don't actually think this is related to the bilateral relationship. Uh, clearly, the sort of chasing out of Mike Smith and Bill uh, uh was... That's the, that's the two Australian journalists ABC who were booted out ABC AFR, and Financial Review. Yeah, uh, But I think this is something different uh, and more political, not bilaterally political, within the Chinese system itself. Uh, and the whole charge of state secrets. I mean, Singapore is no different. Uh, the weather report for tomorrow is a state secret until it's authorised to be released. And there have been people arrested and pr- imprisoned in Singapore for releasing GDP figures before they've been authorised. So, um, it's, again, it's not a moral equivalence argument. I'm just saying this is context. Uh, but uh, what makes it very difficult is because there's no official relationship going on at present between Australia and China... It's very, very difficult for the Australian government to provide any assistance or support, uh, and, as in cheong case, for leaders to talk and perhaps get some resolution of the case. Uh, that is the problem. So it's not a function or result of the difficulties of the bilateral relationship, but the state of the bilateral relationship means the Australian government can do nothing. OK, so, uh
0: you talk about Yang Hanjun as a friend of yours. Um, you see the consular reports, which... After diplomats do visit him, they write a report. The conditions he, he's being held under uh, are pretty tough. So can you give us your sense of the context of this case? Is it about Australia? Uh, what uh, uh, And how is he being
2: treated? Uh, yes, um, the case of Seng Lei and Yang Hongqin is, is actually the dark side of, of China, if you want to talk about it, it even when you talk about it the achievement or economic growth that benefits the Chinese. We, we, we don't, we never uh, ignore on what cost. That is the, the, the dark side of it, that um, well, even, even if we talk about the, the they elevate millions of Chinese out of poverty, but the property, the art of poverty itself is created by communist law. We, 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 we do not need to forget that either. Mm. But in, in, in Yang Hong Jin's case, um, both of them are accused or charged with espionage. The same charge against me, the same thing. If you come from outside, that's a very convenient uh, crime that they can, they can impose on you. Uh, Yang Hong Jin, um, I saw all the, all the uh, reports from the councils over two years. Um, it's one of the successful uh, Australian government efforts to guarantee that they uh, honour the council agreement that allow uh, monthly visit by councils. Of course, due to the COVID nineteen, they should stop for a month between. Right. I think between. we should say also the Chinese uh,
0: officials when they arrested Yang, they mm-hmm. said to him, "Australia doesn't care about you. Australia will forget
2: about you." Right? Uh, absolutely. They want to crush him. That's yeah. simple, simple. Simple as that. I, I think Shen Lei will due similar torture, it's especially for the first six months of so-called uh, uh, residential surveillance. At designated location, it is uh, the worst black jail you That's can imagine. That's not as good as house <laughs> arrest, by the way. It seals you off from the outside world, without any connection from the outside world, and uh, inter- interrogated by secret police with all the techniques. Do uh, not allow you to sleep with the light on, very strong light on, 24 hours in a samosa with toilet. Everything within that room with two guards, 24 hours in six, uh, six uh, three ships to guard you... Inside the room. Inside the room. And you are not allowed to talk to anyone, including the guards, uh, uh, except, from, except from the interrogation. And then the interrogation can, can last for, for 12 hours or, or more than that. But is this case about Australia or is it about Young? For Young's case, actually, the primary... The primary reason for, of his detention or arrest is internal politics. He was a, a writer and um, regarded as an opinion leader who had the capacity to organize or to um, uh, institute a large scale protest in China. Remember back in the begin, at the beginning of 19, uh, 2019, we are talking about Black Swan. That there will be um, nationwide, nationwide protest against the regime may initiate a so called color revolution to overthrow the, the, the regime. They took out all the grassroots activists or opinion leaders. Yang Hong Jin was part of that, that uh, blacklist. Right. And the second, the religion is that uh, due to the uh, Australian uh, position, of uh, passing the new legislation of uh, Australian uh, against Chinese influence or interference. Foreign interference. Uh, foreign interference as well the ban of, of Huawei. The, 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 the Chinese government already engaged in what we call hostage diplomacy. They took two Canadians. And Yang Hongjin also become an a, a easy target. Yep. Okay. In that case, to put, put pressure on Australian government.
0: OK. Thanks for that. I hope we both remember those. Uh, All of us remember those uh, two individuals. Now, I want to move on to Chinese politics generally uh, and and the name of Xi Jinping. Um, uh, If you read the press or watch TV, enormously powerful leader, perhaps the most powerful leader since Mao. Uh, He's abolished term limits, so we don't know how long he will stay in office. In theory, he should have stepped down next year. No successor in line. Uh, Jeff, do you think generally speaking, is all of that true? Is he China's most powerful leader in a generation or two or since the 70s and 80s? And secondly, is he building a particularly stable system by undoing uh, the measures which
1: had an orderly transition of power in the past? Yeah, really, really good questions, Richard. I think, um, and I should say, I'm probably one of the few Westerners that spent so much time with Xi Jinping. When I was ambassador, he was vice president. And I saw him on and off. He was, I also saw him when he was party secretary in Shanghai uh, before he went up to Beijing. And I had a uh, very interesting time spending six days traveling with him in June, 2010, um, where we went up to Kakadu National Park. He was very, very interested in Aboriginal rock paintings. It was this is is He is vice president then? Vice president. Mm. It, was his, uh, it was his request over the embassy in uh, Chinese embassy in Canberra to go and, and, and look at rock paintings. He was um, very, very interested. He'd obviously studied a lot about it on the bus back um, to Darwin and he travelled with everyone on the bus, uh, his workers and security, even though we had a limo for him. Uh, he um, he uh, spoke at length about um, Aboriginal society. The guide was the last person in his tribe and Xi Jinping just could not comprehend meeting the last person of a tribe when you come from 1.4 billion people. But, um, so, structurally what's happened in the politics, uh, I think the second point of your question really goes to the heart of it. Uh, An important element of uh, Deng Xiaoping's period of reform, which is often forgotten, is that following the chaos of the Mao years and the Cultural Revolution and so on, and China was completely on its knees, uh, Deng Xiaoping instituted a form of... um, institutionalized transfer of political power. There was collective leadership uh, amongst the elite circle and uh, and a notion, it wasn't legally enforceable, but that uh, a leader would retire after two terms. And there'd be a transition of power. Now, when you think about it, there are only three ways in authoritarian one-party states to transfer power. Uh, North Korea, which is dynastic, uh, like in the old Soviet Union, through atrophy, where the leader basically dies in office and the uh, country atrophies around the leader, or violently. And I I often point out that in some ways, at the end of the Mao period, China tried all three at once. Uh, Jiang Qing, Mao's wife, tried to pull off a dynastic succession. Uh, Mao had been atrophying for years, as had the country. And and, uh, uh, Deng Xiaoping used the palace guard to get rid of Jiang Qing. So in a sense, you got all three at once in China. Um, But what that's meant, uh, and the serious point, is that the Chinese political system now once again has reverted to its Leninist form and type and is uh, much more brittle, I would suggest, than it's been for a very long time. And so we can only really, I think, conceive of power being transferred in the current situation through some uh, palace coup or uh, upheaval at the centre of Chinese politics. And whether that's containable or not, I don't know. But as I've often said, don't worry about the Chinese economy. All the risks in China are in the political side. And it goes down essentially to this question of transfer of power. And it's not, It doesn't surprise me. I wrote an AFR column back in October 2018 when uh, Xi had his out-of-session military parade that this could indicate Xi had no intention of standing down in 22 uh, because he's a very unconventional leader. He doesn't follow conventions, and that's, a, that's what happened. But, I mean, for him, the problem is if you stand out, who's going to protect him and the family?
2: Yeah,
0: it's
1: too dangerous to leave office. Yeah. Chongi, what do you think?
0: Is he the most powerful leader since Mao, and is this a stable system?
2: I think, uh, on this point, it seems I are uh, almost entirely <laughs> agree with you. I hope that doesn't hurt. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're just finishing this session right now. <laughs> But, but if you look at Chinese political development since 1949, of course the is three states. Mao era, that is the peak of the world totalitarian rule, if you talk about cultural pollution, and then it, it uh, evolved into the Deng Xiaoping era. That, that's what I call the post-totalitarian period. That you establish a uh, collective leadership, you introduce a um, state market economy, you allow uh, personal autonomy, you allow even incipient uh, civil society to emerge. Uh, that's from 1976 up until uh, 2012, and then you come Xi Jinping. That's the new era of neo-totalitarianism. It's, it's the attempt to reverse China back into totalitarian law. All of the things we thought irreversible now have been reversed, including the term limit of top leaders. The ambition of Xi Jinping is three levels, is, it's uh, neatly connected. It's, one is the, his own personal ambition to maintain as the supreme leader for life tenure to take out all the opponent's adversaries or well, politics, anyway. And then the second one is to perpetuate communist rule forever, the Communist Party rule in China forever, to, of course, to crush any organized opposition, as well as outside pressure. And the third one is what we call the liberation of the Chinese nation. For, of, of the of the uh, so-called the wealth and power of China to make uh, China to do with the regional and global submission. That's why they are so hard on Australia to submit. Otherwise, I take you out. I teach to you. So that's the the of Chinese nation means the submission of the nations around China or even around the world.
0: But is this, this briefly, is it stable? I mean, look, China is a sophisticated place, a lot of wealthy, well-traveled people. Is this a
2: stable system? No, no dictatorship is stable. Uh, I argue, I put the, the point in the internet everywhere for quite a long while. No matter what, the Chinese communist rule will not pass on to thought Red generation. Mao is the fourth generation, Deng, Mao and Deng, and Xi Jinping belongs the second red generation in college, its collective in college, the power from their fathers. and they won't be able to pass the power to their, to his daughter or, or the next generation. The Communist the rule will end with this generation either by accident or by his natural death. Okay. We've um,
0: got about five or so minutes before uh, questions. I might say I've done a lengthy paper on this issue of succession, which will be out in a few weeks, all about that history of it. I want to ask you both an issue which is always in the headlines now, sometimes I think in an alarmist way, eventually it will all be true, uh, Taiwan. Uh, um, uh, relatively briefly, both of you, uh, do you think, um, what do you think will happen with Taiwan? Uh, is there any possible of a peaceful solution, say in five to ten years, or are we inevitably moving towards conflict? Jeff,
1: uh, I, in, in the book, I, I, I rule out conflict. Uh, uh, in foreign policy, everything can be possible, but to make sense of the world, you have to assign probabilities, and I assign a very low probability to armed conflict or the Chinese mainland attempting. Beijing attempting to take over Taiwan by by force. Not not, not out of the goodness of their heart, but there is still a very powerful US presence in the region, and the US, I think, still has the will to do something if Beijing acted in an unprovoked way. Um, Equally, I don't know how you militarily occupy an island of 25 million people that don't want you there, but I think the biggest thing is I don't think any uh, leader in communist China uh, could actually survive... uh, Han Chinese murdering Han Chinese on a grand scale? I just think that's out of the question. So the problem for Beijing is that it's lost the generation, the young generation on Taiwan. They simply do not want to be part of the mainland. They have an independent identity. And um, it makes it very, very difficult for Beijing. So I think what you see now is pretty much status quo. I think it's reasonably stable, but the mainland will continue to try and undermine uh, Taiwanese institutions, political elites, and whatever, to try and get a more favourable outcome. But this is a, still a long game to be played. tsong what's your view? Uh, when you talk about
2: Taiwan, I have a very strong sense of nostalgia. If you imagine the Communist Party did not take over China in 1949, senators today were very similar to Taiwan, similar to Japan, similar to South Korea, and all that. Uh, when we talk about it, it's, it's the Republic of, Republic of China in Taiwan. Um, in China, we have very strong uh, feeling or sentiment to get Republican China back in the mainland. So that's the hope. One day, as I said, when one one Chinese Communist will end in, 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 in the mainland, and then they, there's a possibility for the the Democratic Federation of
1: China emerged in each Asia. The I just gen- want to quickly challenge that counterfactual. <laughs> but don't forget that Chiang Kai-shek was a brutal, ruthless dictator when he moved the Kuomintang to Taiwan and ran it as a, as, as a dictatorship into the 1990s. Now, that Taiwan may be a path, uh, one possible path for the mainland. But equally, and I wanted to go make this point, to go back on your previous point, you have to allow the possibility that uh, what you're seeing in terms of political evolution in the mainland is mainland China reverting to type, to a dynastic uh, imperial rule like it had for hundreds and hundreds of years in its history. The Republican period, which was a mess, wrecked by corruption, violent and unpleasant, and saw China splitting up. That so-called democratic period, which wasn't really democratic. It's only like 20 or 30 years. What you're seeing, I think, uh, is China reverting back to very, very long-term traditional forms of social and political organization.
2: Ah, uh, A quick answer, and then we'll go to questions. <laughs> OK, here. OK. I, I, I reject that, that narrative entirely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 30 years of the Republic of China is your golden age of China, a combination of Chinese uh, traditional civilization, which is the Western civilization. Uh, you, you, you have all the institutions, uh, parliament, uh, election of, 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 of president, uh, uh, violent civil society, police, press, all that. Of course, authoritarian regime under Jiang Kai said look ugly than what had been depicted in the media of the totalitarian rule of communists in Yan'an just like so beautiful of Hitler in, 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 in Germany in, in 1930s. the 1930s. The Kuomintang was on its way to constitutional democracy back in the uh, 1940s. And of course, that, that China, if you look at Chinese, Chinese today, the tremendous growth of right consciousness, the belief in the rule of law, if you look at the grassroots level, the Chinese, as Australian or Americans all over the world, we love freedom, we love democracy if you do not hold deep racial discrimination against Chinese as a nation. They have they are human beings, they have the same aspiration, they have the same capacity to aspire for democracy and to achieve democracy. China will never be able to revolve back to diagnostic uh, rule or, or, or long-term dictatorship, that threshold has been passed.
0: Okay, we're not going to solve that one. So um, <laughs> the uh, it's a big issue. So let's have questions. The usual disclaimers, comments, not questions, and hopefully we'll be able to get through a, a brace of them. What did I say today? Yeah, questions, <laughs> not comments. Yes, I've shot myself <laughs> on the foot.
3: This was highly educational. However, uh, reflects Australian male mentality. You are trying to fix China. And what about Australian diplomacy instead?
1: Okay, So Jeff, that's one for both of you, I think, in your your corner. I I, 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 I certainly agree your comment on uh, Australian diplomacy. What's happened is that Australian diplomacy towards China has been weaponized and taken over by the security intelligence establishment in Canberra, and foreign affairs has been completely marginalised. Its budget's been cut. Uh, I mean, it's, it's, we have given up on diplomacy as a country. And a big slab of my book towards the end looks at what we did over the 80s, 90s, and even into the early 2000s, when Australia was an active regional diplomatic um, force uh, and we were able to shape our future through... Uh, very well resourced and active diplomacy led by the prime ministers of the day. Uh, we haven't seen that for a very long time. <laughs> uh, we 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 can't uh,
2: control the outcome of our diplomacy, but we need to do the right thing, right right thing all the time. Do the right thing. For in terms of the the uh, call for. Transparent investigation into the origin of COVID-19, or to pass those um, new regulations to, to defend Australian values, institutions, and sovereignty, is a heroic act in the right direction. Whether it will bring our, our desired outcome, we, we, have, we do not have control. Okay. Next question.
4: Both of you have said you don't want to talk about moral equivalence. But wouldn't it be interesting to put ourselves in China's position and apply a bit of moral equivalence to us and to the United States? For instance, how many bases does China have overseas? One. How many does America have? 85. In the United States, torture is practiced and is claimed to be legal. The United States and its allies have invaded ten countries in the last couple of decades. How many has China invaded? None. The U.S. proposes using tactical nuclear weapons. China says no first use.
0: Okay. And How do we? have the message How do there. we
4: and the United yep. States treat journalists? Yep. We lock them up. Well, Julian Assange.
1: OK, Jeff. Yeah, look, I, I, I think that's a very important perspective, and that's the perspective on the world from Beijing. And that's how I've tried to write my book, is to, is to look at the world through Beijing's eyes, and the world looks very different. My, my view of China's grand strategy, it's based on weakness, not strength. Um, and China sees a hostile world where it's completely under threat. And it is utterly dependent on world markets for all the resources and energy it needs to survive. It doesn't engage in the South China Sea to stop ships flowing through. Quite the opposite, because the US has preponderant naval power and could deny uh, China those resources and energy if it wished. So, I think it's important to have the Beijing perspective. Now, what I don't do, and I don't think you can do, is 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 is, is, is you view that perspective use that perspective to. Uh, if you like, excuse or apologise for bad behaviour. To understand is not to endorse. To understand is to try and, I think, get better policy outcomes for Australia uh, without in any way seeking to endorse a lot of China's bad behaviour. Uh, but the world does look very different, which was the point of that question, if you look at it through Beijing's eyes as opposed to Washington or Canberra's. Zhang I'm fully aware of those
2: conflicting narratives. Again, um, we, or at least myself, will not compare some isolated incident with uh, systematic behavior. If you talk about the crimes in the United States, in China, you have to take all the big picture. Over the seven decades, at least 70 million of innocent people have been murdered or starved to death by this regime through genocide or large scale persecution. It whipped out the entire class of landlords, whipped out the entire class of capitalists, whipped out the entire what they label as uh, rightists. We will talk about now what they look up what's happening in Xinjiang, in Taiwan, Taiwan in Hong Kong. That kind of behavior is not compatible to any incident in the United States or in Australia or anywhere. We need to put things in perspective. Okay. Next question.
4: Thank you. Given the importance of the power currently vested in the president, I've got a hypothetical. If the president of China were to die in office, or if there were he were to be removed from office, would this be helpful to Australian relations?
1: (laughs) Look, that's that's a really good question because it goes to some things that have been discussed already. Um, And it's the one, if you like, slight criticism I had of of Richard's great book on Xi Jinping, is that I don't think any of this is about individuals. It's systemic and it's structural. And... uh, Contrary to what Yi said, I mean, there's only of these three points about Xi. Only one is unique to Xi, that he as a person wants to stay in power. That's because the alternatives are too terrible for him to contemplate, like death. But the others, the perpetuation of the rule of the Communist Party, the the, uh, uh, pride in national achievement and making China a major force in world affairs, that will continue whoever is running the show. I might say, I think my book was... (laughs)
0: A little bit different from what you described, <laughs> but I'll debate it with you later <laughs> over a drink.
2: <laughs> yeah. anyway. okay. Changi, go on, Okay, please. My, my, my position is that uh, politics is human uh, behavior, OK? Person or people matter. I, In my imagination, the death of Xi Jinping, accidentally or by nature, is, is the uh, second point of Chinese process of democratization. I have extensive con- uh, contact with the Liberals and Democrats within the establishment, within the Chinese Communist Party. They all want he- see to be out. When, when, when that day comes, the whole pro- political process, the institution will change fundamentally. It's, it will have the same process as what happened in 1989 to 1991. We all challenge the thesis of democratic peace. If one day China becomes a democracy, we will really have the world peace and prosperity expected since 1980s. Thank you.
4: Thank you. as a musician to provide a context to my question um, I'm wondering Jeff and Chongi if you could comment on the value and possibilities of developing cultural exchanges between our two countries for a greater understanding of, of, of both of us
1: Jeff well I, absolutely I think it's a very very significant thing that we should be doing and it even it's even more important at this time of difficult bilateral relations official relationships. Um, and I think we've gone backwards in that space as well. One thing I did when I first arrived as ambassador in China, because you know, it was 2007, the issue of Taiwan Straits was hugely fraught, um, and uh, uh, there was a view in China that we were the deputy sheriff, uh, helped by the prime minister of the time, John Howard. And One thing I did was start an annual Australian Writers Week in Beijing, which I'm very pleased to see still goes on today. So. People in China could hear an authentic Australian voice. Because the thing is with culture, in a, in a very powerful big state like China, that if China thinks that you're just a... Um, you're, 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 you're mimicking or, or, or an echo of the United States, then there's no reason why they will speak to the monkey when they can talk to the organ grinder, which goes on today. So we really do need to have our authentic voice culturally represented throughout China.
2: Zhang Yi. Yes,
1: I I share your sentiment
2: and your judgment. Yes. Uh, China have been open to the uh, external influence or cultural uh, influence since the mid-19th century, if not earlier, of the modern world. Myself benefit tremendously from that uh, so-called open policy. all the ideas, uh, liberalism, human rights, uh, rule of law, have been imported from Australia, from other part of democracy world into China. We, we, we transplant the entire new legal system, institutions, into China, translated all those classic books in the modern world into the Chinese. And that has been, again, it's a golden period in the 1980s that I benefit from. It's unfortunate when we talk the development of totalitarianism in China, they close, they try to close that exchange again to, on the basis of uh, nationalism or Chinese communist purity. That That is extremely uh, unfortunate um, for the current what we mentioned earlier, the, the um, Little Pink. Little Pink. Who, who have been indoctrinated or brainwashed by those new, uh, um, what little, they little, call the patriotic campaign. And little
0: Pink's are young, uh, uh, fervent communists or party supporters. Mm-hmm. I might say to your question, there are 37, I think, Australian studies centres in China. Some of them are obviously just nominal or shingle above a door or something like that. There's going to be another one actually open soon. Uh, I hope it's not put in the Cold War Studies Department, um, but the, uh, um, uh, but they have not yet been affected by what's happening. But, of course, if this goes on, once COVID travel, once there's travel, uh, you know, there will be an impact. Um, that's one part of it. Anyway, next question.
3: Thank you very much for your very interesting conversation. How does Australia repair or restart diplomatic relationships with China around such thorny issues as the Xinjiang situation and the Huawei networks?
1: Jeff, Well, I mean, some of these things like Xinjiang uh, have been there in the relationship for some time, and it's part of a subset. Uh, I know I'm speaking like a diplomat now, but it's part of the subset of the whole raft of human rights issues which we have raised with China and other Western countries have raised with China for a very, very long time. And uh, when I was a deputy secretary in DFAT, I used to chair the the bilateral annual human rights dialogue with China. And I think that over the years that was going, it actually made a positive contribution. Uh, One of the big things in the last decade was uh, the uh, human rights of uh, Uh, gay and HIV uh, HIV and AIDS sufferers. And uh, China's position started to change on that and to recognise those rights. So uh, progress can be made, but uh, in dealing with human rights, I think you set the arguments back through high-profile megaphone diplomacy. You just have to be consistent, both in your behaviour and in your messaging, and you need to work away at it. And these things won't change quickly. And I agree with Changi. These are endemic to the Chinese system. But the system, where I disagree with Changi, is not about to change anytime soon. So we have to work out how we can advance our interests by being uh, true and faithful to our values. Changi... Uh, and that's and a diplomatic know, challenge. Yes, I fully support you. That that's,
2: We need to be extremely firm in our position with regard to human rights, rule of law and, and the... And the liberal international order, the Chinese Community leadership is so believer in power politics. If you appear weak, they will bully you. But in terms of the uh, actual trade, even during these years, so all those uh, sanctions, sanctions, all that, it's actually very little cost, according. Uh, the, uh, in core t- in to the trade volume, all picture, 2% or 3%? Or I think it's
0: masked because iron oil prices yeah, are exactly. high. So let's, let's see in a yeah. year. And, and Chinese foreign investment into Australia's collapsed. Yeah, so that's, that's still coming. Next question.
1: <clears throat> yes, uh, it's been 30 years this year since the dissolution of the old Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War. If the Chinese Communist Party dissolved as a government of China this year, would it be likely that what would emerge would be a country much like Russia is today, led by a strongman but with a veneer of democracy? And would it actually do any good for the average Chinese citizen? When I look at the conditions of the average Soviet citizen today, Russian citizen, joining <laughs>
2: yeah. us. Uh, no, it, because that's, there are guys like me. Okay. Going <laughs> <laughs> back uh, to be the minister uh, of foreign affairs. To, to, to be serious, uh, the Chinese are sick of personality cult of Mao, of Xi, or whoever. Uh, the one the, sees. Out of the picture. I mean, that's the the, the uh, process to install genuine democracy, following the example of Australia, um, or Europe, or United States. We won't follow the horrible trap
1: of Putin in Russia. No. Uh, I, I look. I, I think these are all possible outcomes. Continuation of the Communist Party, put a probability on that. I'd reckon it's pretty high. Uh, reverting to a liberal, uh, pluralistic, competitive political system. Notice I don't use the word democracy deliberately. Uh, I think the probability where we sit today is pretty low. Something in between, like you're suggesting, a Putin style, I would give that a higher probability than um, a, a pluralistic, competitive, open political system. That's all you can do sitting here today. You can assert whatever you like. But you can only make sense of it in a policy term, terms if you actually try and assign probabilities. And that's why I think in our dystopian future, the probability is most likely uh, something like what we have in China today is going to continue, albeit with swings through some more liberal periods at times and more repressive periods. We are in a more repressive period. I was there in 89. I was on the streets uh, of Beijing watching the tanks. And you realise that was the end of a liberal experiment and then it all came back in the late 90s and for much of the 2000s at least to the global financial crisis. So I think we have to take a longer term view of all this stuff and recognise that there will be swings within the framework of basically Communist Party institutional arrangements to run the country.
0: Yeah, I should say very briefly, you know, the Communist Party has about 90 million members Anybody with any political, uh, technocratic, uh, bureaucratic skill of a senior level is a member. So it's like, kind of like the Iraqi army after the Second Gulf War. You can disband them, but you're going to have to put it back together again because nobody else has the skills currently uh, to run it. And so there's no sort of easy transition. Um, anyway, that's not probably the last question far away.
3: Uh, Dr. Raby, you mentioned about Hong Kong very briefly. And I understand that there is a big distinction between Chinese people and the Communist Party. I'd like to hear your characterization of the treatment of the CCP to Hong Kong recently and also the treatment of the internationally recognized arrangement of one country, two system, whereby Hong Kong is allowed to govern itself and also remain the status quo for 50 years. But what we've seen recently, that is not the case, it's only 20 years down the road, Everything is mm. very different, yep. including the inter- introduction of national security law, where we saw the 57 yep. Yep. people... Oh, got yeah, a... we got yep. it. Yep. Yep. Thanks. So we got
1: it. That's an excellent question. Yep. So you've got a minute or two each. Very good. And I touched on it, on uh, passant in the earlier remarks. Yeah, look, you're not going to like what I'm going to say, but it's, it, it comes from a realist position. Uh, in, on the 1st of July, 1997, the British colonial power, with no reference to the people of Hong Kong, handed Hong Kong over to communist-run China. Done. Finished. And from that day on, Hong Kong has been part of Chinese sovereign territory, just like Tasmania is part of Australian sovereign territory. The 50 years um, uh, basic law period was the best China, Beijing, could get out of the negotiations, given their relatively relative weakness at the time, vis-a-vis the UK. If we're doing it now, there wouldn't be a transition, probably. Or if there was a transition, it might only be five years. There's nothing sacrosanct about that, nor is it an international treaty or an agreement. It's a bilateral um, uh, understanding between the UK and China. And what happened, and I wrote about this in a couple of columns in the AFR at the end of 2019, what happened, once the students and other demonstrators in Hong Kong started burning the Chinese flag... Uh, holding up the, uh, the Union Jack, the UK flag, the American flag, calling for foreign intervi- intervention, um, it's all over. And I think, in many ways, Beijing's been remarkably restrained. There could have been blood all over the streets, because ultimately, and again, this is a major part of my book and the notion of China's grand strategy, a cornerstone of China's grand strat- strategy, if not the foundation, is territorial integrity. And anything that challenges territorial integrity, if it's in Xinjiang, uh, which may be real or imagined, if it's in Tibet, wherever, or Hong Kong, um, Beijing uh, will not tolerate it. OK. To,
2: and one, yep, just you finish off on Hong Kong. OK. Actually, when the formula of one country, two systems was first put out back in 1984, Deng Xiaoping told Li Jiacheng or Li ka in Beijing. Hong Kong system will not be changed within 15 years. And after that, there won't be any need to change anymore because China, the entire China, or its system will become something similar to that one in Hong Kong. That was the original intention and expectation. But that's unfortunate. When China reverses back to totalitarian rule, totalitarian rule is not compatible with autonomy. That's why we see the brutality of communists in Hong Kong. They take away all the autonomy, the uh, basic human rights, the uh, mass democracy, everything, not compatible with the totalitarian rule. When Hong Kong was returned to China is based on that agreement written in in the sino- British declaration but now China simply tied up and reassured totalitarian Italian order in China okay on that
0: note I'd like to thank you both for being straight to the point <laughs> and succinct uh, for a great panel thank you very much thank you. <laughs> thank you thank
3: you, thank you. Thank you.